0: Never mentioned in the same breath as other famous science fiction trilogies, the Star Trek trilogy of movies is worthy of note. For one, it's an example of a series of movies coming together to make a single story, even though they were not meant that way from the outset. One of the main complaints of the Star Wars sequels was that they were not planned out from the beginning, but neither was the Star Trek trilogy, so that seems to undermine that complaint. However, like the Mission Impossible film series. What Star Trek had going for it, that Star Wars didn't, was that the creative team behind the movies, producer-writer Harv Bennett primarily, was the same throughout, and Bennett was able to build off the last movie almost seamlessly, thanks to some creative foresight in the making of The Wrath of Khan. Which leads me to expand some more upon the trilogy of which I speak. The Star Trek films, The Wrath of Khan*, The Search for Spock, and The Voyage Home, all of which tell a separate but interlinked story, have become to be known as a trilogy of movies, even though they are in fact the second, third, and fourth film in that particular series. The creative decisions that led to this have been covered ad infinitum, as have the movies themselves, so we're not going to bother looking at any of that. Rather, I want to look at the movie novelisations of those films and see how author Vonda McIntyre took those scripts and did the same thing, but over a series of books. I've long held the opinion that Star Trek is actually better in book form, or rather it was back in the day. Back when there were only the original series, a few movies and a cartoon show, Publisher Pocket Books, who held the Star Trek license, offered a lot more creative freedom in the novels than in more recent years. In the late 1980s, Gene Roddenberry and his assistant Richard Arnold were troubled by the confusion some fans displayed over the inconsistencies between the novels and The Next Generation. So Arnold was put in charge of overseeing the tie-ins, and by around 1990 he'd imposed a rigid policy that forbade the novels and comics from having any original continuing characters or story threads of their own. Even though Arnold lost his job pretty much the day after Gene Roddenberry passed away in 1991, his restrictive policy continued to hold for most of the decade. It was only in the late 1990s, with the emergence of Peter David's New Frontier and crossover miniseries like Invasion and so forth, that pocketbooks started to once again have an ongoing, consistent novel continuity that is still going today, albeit somewhat altered thanks to Picard. In the 1980s, though, the series had a number of authors who, unrestricted by budget, took Star Trek in daring and exciting directions. Author John M. Ford fleshed out the Klingons and Diane Duane gave her stories a more hard science fiction bent than even the series had. Duane also developed the Romulans far better than any of the television series. Sure, there were problems. There isn't a single character, alien race or concept that hasn't been given a sequel of some sort in the books, but when done properly such as exploring Kirk's life before the TV show, this kind of story could be well-received. There's more imagination, creative storytelling, and exploration of character in a Diane Duane Star Trek novel than in any of the bad robot movies. At the time McIntyre was assigned to the gig to write the novel for The Wrath of Khan, she already had a successful Trek novel under her belt, The Entropy Effect, based upon a spec script she wrote for the series in 1967 that even got as far as being read by Roddenberry. This novel was the first in the series after the best-selling adaptation of the motion picture and gave Sulu his first name, Hikaru, as well as demonstrating that the Hugo and Nebula award-winning author was a great science fiction writer, but also a great Star Trek writer, which aren't always the same thing. McIntyre's novelisation to the three Trek movies are some of the finest novels of films ever made. Film and TV tie-ins get a bad rap, but the best of them are just as valid an art form as any other creative endeavour. How many of the people now involved in television production are self-proclaimed fans of Target Publishing's Doctor Who range? How many bad movies – Star Trek V, I'm looking at you – have been redeemed by a good novelization? How many people, myself included – moved on to reading so-called proper books after growing up reading James Blish's Star Trek TV adaptations. In a range as expansive as the Star Trek novels, the movie novelizations are just another layer, adding to the ongoing tapestry. And McIntyre, no doubt encouraged by the creative freedom pocketbooks had at this point, incorporated many continuity elements from the other novels into the books. These weren't gratuitous continuity or fanboy pleasing smugness, but tiny touches that made the characters feel like they lived real lives. Unlike a lot of movie novelizations at the time, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, note the lack of a two, has a new cover, not simply a reproduction of the movie poster. It depicts an almost Cherubic looking Admiral Kirk, Spock and a headshot of Khan in the background, coloured warp speed lights emanating from Khan's eyes. The book is not a straightforward retelling of the film. There's a lot of added dialogue and additional scenes. Kirk is portrayed as a lot angrier about his ageing and the way his life is going than in the film, where William Shatner tends to play him as tired rather than grumpy. The first additional scene is in the early part of the film. After the Kobayashi Maru simulator, the cadets all report to debriefing, and this scene is shown in the book, whereas it's skipped over completely in the film. The scene is more of Kirk essentially ribbing Savick about her performance, although we do learn that Savick's tactics would have worked had the simulator not recently been updated to include an added phalanx of Klingon vessels. McIntyre adds a lot to the character of Savick. We learn of her half Vulcan, half Romulan background, her early life, and her struggles to be more civil when she has Romulan blood in her veins. Her split heritage is actually more interesting than Spock because essentially she has the same makeup. Romulans and Vulcans are pretty much the same race, so on a DNA level, there probably isn't that noticeable a difference but the Romulan way is more bloodthirsty and forthright. Her learning to control this side of her personality under Spock's tutelage is fascinating, and only hinted at in the film. Scotty's nephew, Peter Preston, little more than a cameo in the movie, also has more scenes, and is linked to Savick in an interesting way. Preston is an exceptionally good engineer, but is attending additional maths classes, as in the book he is said to be only 14 years of age. Savick is his tutor, and not only is she fond of the young lad, but we learn he has a bit of a crush on his teacher. The math class scene between them, just after Preston has taken a bit of a telling off from Scotty, is sweet and moving. Scotty is annoyed that Preston spoke back to Kirk when he was touring the engineering section, a scene cut from the film. This moment causes some antagonism between Scotty and Preston, all of which is building up to the loss both characters will feel when Preston is killed during the attack on Enterprise by the Reliant. McIntyre makes all these extra relationships feel real, like these people have known each other for a long time, and it gives the story a deeper level. The novel establishes that the command crew have all pulled a few strings to get on Enterprise for this training cruise, which does explain why none of them have been reassigned. Sulu is actually taking his vacation as he is about to take command of the USS Excelsior, having recently been promoted to captain. McCoy is more proactive in needling Kirk about his state of mind, wanting him to snap out of his funk and get his mojo back. McIntyre devotes more time not only to the crew of the USS Reliant, but to the scientists on Regular 1, here called Regulus 1, and Kahn's people who are stranded not on SETI Alpha 5, but Alpha SETI 5. I have no idea the reason behind these minor changes. Chekhov, indeed the entire crew of the Reliant, is revealed to be bored in searching for planets with no life for the Genesis project, and this explains his lack of checking the data when they come across Khan's planet. It's also established how Karn can remember Chekhov when he wasn't a regular character in Space Seed, the episode that featured Khan. Apparently Chekhov worked the second shift during Space Seed, which is why we didn't see him in the show. A continuity retcon I can live with. The biggest addition is the Regulus One scenes. Not only are there extended and additional moments where McIntyre deepens the relationship between the staff on Regulus One, giving them all names and personalities, but she also establishes that Spock knows two of the young mathematicians, though, Vance Madison and Del Marsh, again giving us the personal cost to Khan's rampage at the expense of shrinking the universe slightly. These two characters specifically will have more importance, not only in this novel, but across the next two. The sequence where Khan arrives on Regulus is lengthened considerably. Glossed over in the film, the scientists engage in a sequence where they upload Genesis somewhere safe, delete all mention of it from Regulus 1's computer banks, and then leave a surprise for Reliant in the form of a computer game they wrote to alleviate the boredom. This raises a wry smile when Carol Marcus moans that they keep filling up the memory with saved games, totalling all of 50 Meg. What was funny becomes tragic as Khan fails to see the humour and tortures and murders the space station staff in incredibly gory and horrific ways. This is a level of horror we have not seen in Star Trek before, and arguably wouldn't again until the streaming shows Picard and Discovery. McIntyre doesn't shy away from the horrific nature of Khan's crimes, and she even gets into Khan's followers' heads. None of them are particularly thrilled with Khan's methods here, with Joaquin, Khan's right hand man, played by an uncredited Judson Scott in the film, being disgusted with what Khan is doing. More is also made of Joaquin's disagreements with Khan over even going after Kirk in the first place, something Joaquin considers a waste of time and energy. The most interesting change, but also perhaps the silliest, comes in relation to David Marcus's parentage. In the film, it's quite clear Kirk knew about David, as did McCoy, but he stayed away, as per Carol's wishes. Interestingly, in a scene deleted from the theatrical cut, but reinstated in the director's edition, it's established that Spock did not know about David. Oddly, this scene isn't in the book. McIntyre has Kirk be completely unaware of David's existence, something that causes Carol to mock Kirk's ability to do maths. I do wonder when this change was made. Is it something McIntyre altered so as not to make Kirk a deadbeat dad, which arguably he wasn't. He simply respected Carol's desires that he not be involved. Or if it was altered after McIntyre received her copy of the script... Maybe it was altered in actual production, so Kirk didn't seem as clueless. Personally, I prefer that he knew, but took an interest from afar, which seems to be the implication from the film, rather than he didn't know at all. Obviously, opinions may vary. As the novel moves into the third act, the differences subside and the book becomes a standard translation of the film to the page. Khan isn't as, quote, happy in the final stages of the book. His, I'll chase him round, the moons of nebula" speech has already been excised. And in all honesty, Kahn isn't as big a force in the novel as on screen, a sign perhaps that it's Ricardo Montalban's superior performance that elevates Khan into the big leagues of classic movie villains. One major change is Sulu is almost killed in the Mutara Nebula battle and rushed to sickbay, meaning he's not present from the final confrontation. Although it gives David more to do than stand around, as it's he who saves Sulu's life whilst they wait for the paramedics to arrive. Of course, the biggest difference is the one we all know about. In the novel, Spock does not raise his hand to Dr. McCoy's face and say, "'Remember?' Rather famously, that scene was added in pickups, as was the shot of Spock's coffin nestled in the bracken of the Genesis planet. In fact, this novel makes it hard for McIntyre to square the events of the third film with that adaptation. In the book, Spock's will clearly states he does not want his body returned to Vulcan, which I didn't feel made a lot of sense. And Savok herself programs the coffin's cause to disintegrate in the Genesis planet's atmosphere. Why would Spock not want his remains returned to Vulcan if, as the third film suggests, he placed his Catra in McCoy for refusion? Obviously, these weren't issues on McIntyre's mind when novelising this movie and only became problems two years later. She also mentions that the next class of Federation starship will be the galaxy class, prefiguring the next generation by five years. Overall, though, The Wrath of Khan is a superior novel of an already excellent film. She gives a nothing to do, but does expand Scotty and Sulu's role significantly. She also sets up a potential relationship between Savick and David, and a possible reconciliation between Carol and Kirk, one of which she will pay off, and one she'll have to backpedal on. It's a pacey read as well. I devoured this in three sittings across less than 24 hours. Let's see going forth how McIntyre takes the dangling threads and ties them into the next novel in the series The Search for Spock. As with the last novel, this does not feature the movie poster, but rather a specially commissioned cover by Boris Vallejo, Featuring Kirk, phaser Drone, McCoy and Sulu with Spock's face hovering in the background. It's based on a still from later on in the film when Kirk and co beam down to the Genesis planet. Star Trek Three could have gone in many directions, and to some the direction they did go in was a disappointment. After establishing a new, younger crew in Star Trek II, three doubled down on the main cast, ignoring many of the elements of the second film, and instead focusing on resurrecting Spock at the expense of the newer characters and situations. It also gave McIntyre more to deal with, but less room with which to do it, with Carol Marcus not appearing in the film at all, and most of the trainees being reassigned before the movie opens. There is no mention in the film of the crew of Reliant, who should also have been on the Enterprise after the end of the last movie. To get around this, McIntyre expands the story before the story, with three full chapters and nearly 80 pages before the film even begins, picking up the day after Spock's funeral. McCoy and Scotty have decided that it's a great idea to hold a wake, which results in everybody being even more miserable. McIntyre immediately retcons the end of the last novel, establishing that Savick disobeyed orders to have Spock's casket orbit the planet and then land carefully. She also has to have Carol and Kirk back being at each other's throats, because we retroactively learn that Carol was sleeping with one of the scientists on Regulus 1, Vance Madison, meaning Kirk has no real chance with a situation he completely misread. Now, this was a surprise to me, as I completely misread that situation as well. I read the subtext of the last novel to imply that Vance and Del were gay. Granted, I don't have the best gaydar in the world, but I really thought that the subtext here was unmistakable. Which shows what I know. I mean, it's possible Vance was sleeping with Del Marsh and Carol. After all, they were trapped on Regulus for two years with only the eight of them, and two of them were Deltons. And obviously sex probably won't be as binary in the 23rd century speaking of sex samick takes kirk's advice last time round we learn by doing by taking david to her quarters for the night solidifying the flirtation they underwent last time mccoy is being a massive ass to everyone quoting spockisms and being fearish and cranky oh more cranky than usual and scotty is just miserable Additionally, the Enterprise meets up with the USS Grissom, which has just been assigned to deal with the fallout of Genesis. And the captain, J.T. Estaban, tells Kirk, Carol and David about the massive backlash there has been to their work over the past 48 hours. This is all great character work, but my God, it's depressing. Scotty is particularly mischaracterised as a real miserable bastard, wallowing in self-pity and generally being unpleasant. Even in an extended sequence where he goes home to Scotland for Peter's funeral, he's nasty to his sister, who he feels isn't up to snuff for a Starfleet officer, and upon his return he's insubordinate to the point of being busted to Admiral Morrow, who wants him to ditch the refit of Enterprise in exchange for working on the new USS Excelsior. Speaking of the Excelsior, McIntyre addresses the subplot of Sulu's captaincy of that vessel, a holdover from scenes cut from the Wrath of Khan but utilised in the novel. Admiral Morrow informs Sulu that due to the controversial nature of Genesis, he will have to stick around for the testimonials and as such will not be taking command of the vessel as planned. Sulu is understandably pissed off. And it's this that sours this part of the novel. Everyone is pissed off. Carol is pissed off with Kirk. Kirk is pissed off with David, who likewise is pissed off with him. Kirk is also pissed off with McCaw, who wanders around in a stupor, doing bad impersonations of Spock and irritating everybody. Scotty is pissed off about Peter and the Enterprise, and is in real danger of becoming an old get-off-my-lawn fart. David is especially portrayed as an arrogant, undisciplined hothead in this novel, presumably to set up the later reveal. He has Kirk's impulsiveness, but none of his experience or maturity, and he's pissed off at Starfleet, generally. I get that, according to the novel, we're only a couple of days removed from the last movie, but to have everyone be pissed off with everyone else starts to get a tad old. Some of this is necessary. McIntyre has the space to show us what happened to Carol. She's able to explain that the Enterprise's condition meant she didn't return to Regulus to pick up the survivors of Reliant. Another ship did, due to Starfleet wanting Enterprise and her crew home as quickly as possible, and locked down the political ramifications of Genesis, something the film didn't really want to have to deal with. As the book moves into the film, McIntyre manoeuvres everyone into position. Carol and Dr. Chappell, who was inexplicably on the Enterprise in the last novel, go back to Regulus to identify the bodies and prepare them for transport to their respective homes. The Grissom needs an officer familiar with what happened, so takes Savick along with Dr. David Marcus to examine and report on Genesis. Finally, with Valeris appearing and sending the stolen data on Genesis to the Klingon adversary, Kruge, the book slowly segues into the film story. There's an interesting gaff on page 126... As Crooge watches the report on Genesis, it's given by Kirk, as it is in the film. This makes no sense, as it should have been the same presentation we saw in the last film. Obviously, in the film, the reason for this is budgetary. Using the same footage would have necessitated paying actor B.B. Besh, so it was re-recorded with a very bored-looking William Shatner. The book is under no such restriction, so it's odd that it's Kirk. However, later on the page... Kirk is referred to as She, implying McIntyre wrote this to be Carol, but at the last moment it was edited to reflect the film. Whoever did the editing didn't spot the later references to Carol in the text. Star Trek 3 is only a 100 minute movie and as such it features a lot of shorthand. What exactly did happen to Genesis? Why didn't Starfleet send other ships after Enterprise? How did Uhura get to Vulcan? And many other questions can be ignored in the movie itself, as it's a fun ride. But in the novel, McIntyre can explain things more clearly. She takes Genesis and makes it less fantasy, trying to justify it in more scientific terms that at least sound plausible, as well as explaining that David really screwed it up and Genesis is completely worthless. The movie series just ignored Genesis as they went along, but McIntyre closes the loop quite successfully. Savak is more annoyed and angry with David in the novel. If David hadn't done what he did, so many recent events would not have happened, including the deaths of his friends. McIntyre basically makes David's penance not just for Genesis, but for the lives of many others. As for Uhura and the Starfleet questions, McIntyre answers both with the same answer. Uhura stays behind after Enterprise leaves, blocking transmissions and calls... ...so Starfleet doesn't actually know what's going on. She can't prevent the people in space dock from, you know, looking out of a window and seeing what's happening... ...but she can clog up official channels and cause mass confusion. Uhura is then granted diplomatic immunity by Sarek and he takes her to Vulcan with him. Granted, both the film and the book ignore that Admiral Morrow knew exactly what Kirk was up to and where he was going, and he could have easily ordered a ship to intercept them, but he doesn't. Again, this can be explained. Morrow wanted to help Kirk, or he did in the novel, but couldn't due to orders. All he has to do is keep his mouth shut and allow Kirk time to do whatever he needs to do. If this is the case or not, it doesn't matter as it's never addressed, but it does work, once you get to the fourth novel and realise that Admiral Morrow is retiring and on his way out the door to be replaced by Admiral Cartwright... ...probably more because of a change of actor than anything else, but, you know, retcons have been built on less. We do find out in the novel why Spock's mother Amanda isn't present at the ceremony, though, that reunites Spot with his marbles... ...a question many fans had about the film. Unlike the car novel, McIntyre continues to add to the tapestry of the story throughout... Crooge underestimates Kirk because he thinks Kirk has a crew of 400, something that allows Kirk to get the upper hand, unlike in the film where Crooge doesn't act because the plot needs him not to. More explanation is given to the destruction of the Genesis planet and more about the Fal Torpan, the Vulcan device that will restore Spock's mind with his body. Other novels like Spock's World by Diane Duane and The Lost Years by J.M. Dillard followed up on what McIntyre develops here. Overall, the Search for Spot novel is a far more sombre affair than the film, which itself isn't a laugh riot. It can't quite get over the problem that it undoes Khan, in that once again Kirk cheats death, albeit with losses, including the Enterprise and his son. As we remember from Trek 4, the former will be an issue for long. Granted, this is a problem with the script McIntyre is adapting, rather than a problem with her novel per se. Over the years, I've actually thought Star Trek would have been better served if Spock had stayed dead. The DC Comics series had the comic pick-up after Khan, but had the Enterprise crew with youngsters integrated in with the originals, and an expanded role for Savick, which I think would have been much better than what ultimately happened. Shatner and Nimor used the star power to jockey for control, and I don't think that was really good for the series. The novel to track three is the longest novelisation in the series, but for the shortest film, showing just how many loose ends McIntyre had to wrap up. Still, it is what it is. The novel deepens the characters, expands on the film, plugs up plot holes, and may be one of the better novel adaptations ever written. Oh, and it totally implies that Savick had sex with 21-year-old Spock in the throes of Far. Arguably, the crew are in even more disarray after Star Trek Three than after Star Trek II, and as such, the producers were once again left in the position where they had no choice but to pick up where they left off. This was an even more unenviable position than last time, where they only had to deal with the death of Spock. Here, they destroyed the Enterprise, turned the crew into renegades, and basically upended the entire premise of the series. How the hell could they boldly go anywhere without the Enterprise? that. God, the score to Star Trek 4 sucks. Star Trek 4 The Voyage Home came out in 1986, Star Trek's 20th anniversary. McIntyre again novelised the movie, the cover of which was the teaser poster rather than an actual poster. For the third time in a row, the cover boasts it's based on Paramount Pictures Supreme Space Adventure. Come on, guys, they can't all be Paramount Pictures Supreme Space Adventure. With four, McIntyre takes the more straightforward route and produces a novel that adapts the movie adequately and faithfully, but without the bells and whistles of the previous books. To refer to McIntyre, she's hampered here with a script that concentrates only on the core crew, and therefore she has less to work with. In The Wrath of Khan, she could flesh out the crews of Regulus One and The Reliant, as well as Savick and Peter Preston. In The Search for Spark*, the brevity of that movie's script meant she had a lot of loose ends to tie up. In The Voyage Home she has none of that. She does have to give more of an explanation as to why Savik doesn't accompany them home and why they waited three months to return to Earth, but neither of those require lengthy explanations. For the former, she establishes that Savik had requested an assignment on Vulcan to better understand them as a people and hopefully better understand herself. Despite it being heavily rumoured, no mention is made of Savik being pregnant after her assisting spark through his ponfar. Despite Bennett saying such a scene was filmed. Given the continuity of the books, I would have preferred her being pregnant with Kirk's grandchild. That would have been interesting. For the latter, McIntyre establishes that the Faltor Pan wasn't a one-and-done kind of thing. McCoy and Spark had to endure a number of sessions in an effort to fully restore both men back to normal. Carol is mentioned as being busy visiting the relatives of everyone who died on Regulus 1 and is incommunicado, meaning neither Kirk nor Savick have spoken to her about the death of David. Other than that, this novel closely follows the movie. There's more about the probe's desires, more data about humpback whales, and the probe and the whales even have a conversation Parallels are drawn to the Enterprise's last few time-travelling adventures... ...with specific mention made of Edith Keeler from City on the Edge of Forever... ...and just how bringing someone, animal or human, through time could be folly. But overall, The Voyage Home isn't hard science fiction. It's a romp. Which doesn't really play into McIntyre's strengths as a writer. The humour of the film doesn't really translate to the page as effectively. And in a novel, the simplistic way Kirk and Coa led off with a slap on the wrist is even more egregious. The film is so light-hearted and playful, we turn a blind eye to the ending, where Kirk's crimes are all but ignored, and he's essentially rewarded for disobeying orders, crippling Starfleet communications, disabling a ship of the line, and destroying another. It makes no sense at all that the entire crew be reassigned to the new Enterprise, especially as, as Judge Takai is fond of saying, Sulu is a captain now. And it's a False note on which to end, especially in McIntyre's novel where she has tried to show that actions have consequences and added layers of pathos to the characters. McIntyre just lets the ending slide, as the film did, possibly because she can't really justify it logically. The Voyage Home is the lesser of the three novels, featuring no real noteworthy additions to the story other than minor moments and the expansion of the Faltor Pan ceremony. Savick is ignored, Cook still hasn't spoken to Carol, and everything is back to where it was before Wrath of Khan happened. Again, none of this is McIntyre's fault. It's a lack of creativity on the part of the studio and the producers, so McIntyre has her hands tied. It's more apparent here than in any of the other books, and I wonder if she was asked to not add as much to this one. Sadly, we cannot ask her, as Vonda McIntyre passed away on April 1st, 2019. Her career was expansive and not limited to just Star Trek, writing many novels in a career spanning nearly 50 years. Her last contribution to Star Trek was the 20th anniversary giant novel Enterprise, The First Adventure. While she was grateful to Star Trek and happily mentioned that the royalties kept some of her other projects afloat, she also mentioned that the creative freedom she was granted in her early books was eroding towards the end. Couple that with her desire to not be seen as only a Star Trek novelist, meant she moved on to other things. Obviously, the novels continued with J.M. Dillard taking over for Star Trek's 5 and 6, and she followed on from McIntyre. Carol continued to ignore Kirk and stay away from him for Star Trek V, but by 6, they had reconnected and planned to be together after Kirk retired. In the films themselves, Carol was never mentioned again, and neither was Savick. The latter was supposed to return for Star Trek VI, but with Kirstie Alley unwilling to return and the director, Nick Mayer, not liking Robin Curtis's portrayal of the character, it was decided to change the character to a new one, Valeris. Dillard's novel establishes that Valeris is yet another young, pretty Vulcan woman that Spock takes under his wing. Apparently the bloke's got form. Savik and Valeris are close friends, but no further details are revealed about Savik post-Star Trek VI. All of the Star Trek novelisations are worthy of note, particularly Star Trek V, which I read before I saw the film, which probably explains why I don't dislike that movie as much as some others do. If you're bored over the lockdown, you could do a lot worse than dive into the Star Trek universe.
1: I hope he's home. does it sound like i'm using a phone in the uk i told you never to call me again yeah i know and modern science has yet to create a device to measure how much i don't care look i'm getting the trailer for this year's jail May together and i assumed i had to make you a part of it since you're always in everybody's trailer or something <laughs> well look at you leading this year's jail may somebody's wearing his big boy pants so what's the theme I sent you an email like a month ago. Like, I even pay attention to anything you send me. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis? No, Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I'm not following. Shocking. The theme this year, I'm going to, like, I'm talking to a child. The theme this year is Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I thought it was a fascinating time period in DC's history, so a bunch of us are getting together to talk about the various specials and miniseries and crossovers that led up to Infinite Crisis. It's the event before the event. The whole thing is going to kick off on April 30th, 2020, with a special episode of Views from the Long Box covering the countdown to Infinite Crisis 80-page giant, and from there, a whole bunch of shows that I will be adding in post-production will discuss these previously mentioned miniseries and crossover issues. And people actually agreed to this? Shockingly, yes! Well, it's probably a good thing that you're going to cover Countdown to Infinite Crisis instead of the Countdown series, because that was a train wreck. Yeah, you know, actually, that was my thinking, too. Now, are you going to help me with this trailer or not? Fine, I will help you with your little trailer. Good, uh... Don't worry, by the way, there won't be any dates for you to get wrong.
2: I hate you so much. J.L. May 2020, Countdown to Infinite Crisis, the event before the event. This crossover kicks off on April 30th, 2020, on Views from the Longbox, and continues into Aquaman and Firestorm, the fire and water podcast. Robin, everyone loves the drake. Pop Culture Affidavit, It All Comes Back to Superman, The Fan Holes Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Married with Comics, The Coffee and Comics Podcast, The Longbox Crusade, Task Force X, Relatively Geeky Presents, Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, and the Dr. DC Podcast.
0: Okay, email sack time. Oliver Villar has emailed back in about episode 145, which was Amazing Spider-Man 94 through 100. If you're paying close attention, you'll notice that I screwed up the numbering in between episodes 145 and 150. And that's because I released them out of order because of the editing and other stuff and, and things like that. So the numbering system, though don't make any sense, but it is what it is, isn't it? Hi, Andy. Hi, Oliver. Just finished listening to episode 145. Amazing Spider-Man 94 was more or less a crash course in all things Spidey at that point. And thankfully John Byrne redesigned the Beatles look in the 80s as the original suit was so jarring to look at. According to the Amazing Spider-Man index he shows up next in Daredevil 108 which I remember buying the fur conditioned copy of in 1994. Issue 95 felt a bit underwhelming. Hero takes a trip overseas and returns in the following issue, which leads us to the next three issues. The first time I read issues 96 through 98 was through a triple-sized issue of Marvel Tales, which reprinted the entire trilogy in 1986. That's where I first read it, Oliver. That issue, because I was really pissed off with Marvel Tales at that point. Because up until then, they'd been doing monthly reprints, haven't they, of the Lee Ditko ramita run. And they did it all the way through up to issue 50. And then I was really pissed off when the next issue came on, and it was the two-part Death of Gwen Stacy. Now, it was nice to read the unexpurgated version of the Death of Gwen Stacy Because I only had it in the British Annual from the early 80s, which lops out a couple of pages to make it a standalone story basically removes any of the subplots so it's nice to be able to read all of it and then obviously it was nice to get the next issue which would you say was a triple sized edition having all three issues of the drug story in but i really to this day i wish they'd carried on just carry on doing marvel tales um with issue 51 and 52 and so on and so forth because i think that would have been great but they didn't you know and nowadays we can just get them wherever we want don't we in issue 96, the drawing of the young man under the influence on the roof looked horrifying to me the first time I saw that panel. Interesting that Peter and the gang went to see MJ perform in a production of her. They didn't. Uh, no, that, that may have been me cocking something up. Murray Jane's production is something completely different. Aunt May and Aunt Anna were going watching her. Had Murray Jane been in her, I think everybody would have seen an awful lot more of her. <laughs> From the looks of the drug dealer's fashion sense from issue 97 and 98, the money made from dealing really showed. His two henchmen were drawn very creepily. Yes, I noticed when reading the three issues for the first time that the guy in the audience at MJ's performance resembled the drug dealer. When you were discussing what the future would have held for Peter and Gwen after issue 99, I couldn't help but think about Spider-Man Life Story by Chips Darsky and Mark Bagley, where Peter and Gwen actually have a life together. Yeah, and I've covered it. I have covered Spider-Man Life Story. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it, because I love that story. I think it's absolutely great. I'd forgotten about the Tonight Show reference from the same issue, and it wouldn't be the last time Spider-Man would be seen at 30 Rockefeller Place, as he and MJ would be in the audience for a live airing of Saturday Night Live in Marvel Team-Up Issue 74. Also, according to the Amazing Spider-Man Index, Marvel 2 and 1 issues 1 and 2 take place after issue 99, which would mean that 99 would have to have taken place during the month of the year, sorry, during the last month of the year since Marvel team-up issue 1 takes place during Christmas. Then there's issue 100, which I also first read as a Marvel Tales reprint, which I remember buying along with Ghost Rider issue 15 from the 1990 series that displayed a glow-in-the-dark cover. If they had skipped the hallucinations during this story, the issue would have been, what, ten pages long? After that, Stan takes a four-issue break from the series along with Fantastic Four and Thor, and all because he was working on a screenplay with Alan Resnay, which I believe never saw the light of day. Looking forward to the next batch of Amazing Spider-Man issues with Roy Thomas. Keep up the great work, Oliver Villar. Well, you do not have to wait long, Oliver. It's like I pay you to segue me in incredibly professionally. For that will be the next episode. It's already written and edited. That's how on the ball I am, While we're all at home with nothing else to do. Technically, we should be throwing out a lot more episodes than we are, really. But yes, so the next episode will be the Roy Thomas run on Amazing Spider-Man, covering issues 101 through 105, so I hope you enjoy that. Our next and final email is Chris Franklin, the delightful Chris Franklin, who I just had the pleasure of talking to for an upcoming crossover episode of something. Who knows? Hi Andy, hi Chris. I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary on By Any Other Name. I agree it's an unsung episode, just good solid trek. Nothing more, nothing less. Well, maybe for Scotty it's a bit more, because these have to be some of Duan's most endearing moments. I recently re-watched this one with Cindy and Danny, and one thing I really thought clever is how the Kelvins slowly get more color in their skin as they become more human and emotional. It's a nice, subtle visual to sell how Kirk's plan is working. Loving everything you are doing, including your wonderful Spider-Man series. Keep it coming, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris, much appreciated. I love everything you do. Uh, the recent video you did on your wonderful toys, showing off your toy room was a delight. And if you want to watch that video, it's on YouTube under the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, it's really good. Really good looking at Chris's ties. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. If if you want to be like Chris and Oliver, and why would you not want to be, email me, heyKidsComics at virginmedia.com to talk about what we have been discussing in recent times. I'd love to know what you all thought of Survivors. Especially at the minute. Um, Palace of Glitter and Delights is a two true fricks presentation. And I'll be back whenever the next time is. Like I so, said, I could release it tomorrow. It's done, it's edited, it's ready to go. I like to space these things out. There's a lot of things competing for your attention. Uh, you don't want to get lost in the flood. Do you? Yeah. I'll see y'all next time. Everything's going to be fine. Possibly, maybe, hopefully. Who knows? Um, take care. Be safe. Stay at home if you can. If you can't be careful and uh, we'll see you next time.
2: Goodbye.